I'm Chris Reback. This is Working Capital Conversations. Great business leaders are often seen as innovators, inspirational storytellers, and brilliant strategists. They are keen and decisive observers. But would we envision any mathematical principles in their toolkit? Just as business finds solutions to various problems and hurdles, mathematical formulas and practices make sense of our chaotic world. So what can business-minded individuals learn from these insights? How do principles of randomness and probability factor into shrewd business planning? Jordan Ellenberg is the internationally best-selling author of How Not to Be Wrong and the recently published book, Shape, The Hidden Geometry of Information, Biology, Strategy, Democracy, and Everything Else. Ellenberg is the quintessential both sides of the brain individual. He holds a master's in fiction writing from Johns Hopkins and a PhD in math from Harvard. He's been writing for a general audience about math for more than 15 years and advocates for leaning into the anxieties and misunderstandings many of us have about the subject. Before my conversation with Jordan, though, an ask from me to you. I hope you like these Working Capital Conversations. If so, I'd appreciate if you'd take a moment, go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, and if you're so moved, leave a five-star review. The ratings really matter. They go a long way to helping other people find the podcast. Thank you. Here's my conversation with Jordan Ellenberg. Jordan, thanks for joining me. I appreciate your time. Oh, thanks for having me on, Chris. We live, obviously, in an age where everything has to be measured. And here I am talking to a mathematician. As we sit, we kind of wallow in this sea of data, making the point that, yes, data matters, but the narrative matters too. The prose matters too. How do you think about our times and the role? Is it an oversized role that we seem to give data in terms of driving decision-making? I think that can be the case, yes. And I think it often is the case. There's a great book by my friend Kathy O'Neill called Weapons of Mass Destruction, which is all about the sort of like the things that can go wrong. And I mean, really wrong when you kind of blindly say, okay, there's an algorithm, there's a spreadsheet and whatever the spreadsheet says, that's the truth. Like that's what we're going to go by. I'll give you an example. To Facebook, I'm a long list of numbers, maybe some ASCII characters and a long list of numbers that represents to it where I sit in a social network, what products it may think I'm likely to buy, what age it thinks I am because I haven't told it my birthday, but it can almost certainly like figure out that pretty well. Some long list of like some number of numbers. Now, those are facts about me. The danger is if you start to think that is me, because I'm not a series of a thousand numbers and neither of you. That's the mistake you don't want to make. For our business listeners, would you argue that's a pretty good reason why business people should understand geometry? Yeah. I think among most teachers to say like, why are we teaching your kids or you all this stuff about triangles. Is it because you got to go out into the world with a lot of knowledge about triangles? No, not so much. I mean, I love triangles, but um, <laughs> but it is true that I think most people see it as the point is to teach a certain mode of thinking. Now, what is that mode? What we do in geometry that's different from everything else we do in the high school curriculum is we prove theorems. Like we really prove them by a strict process of logical deduction. So again, you might think, oh, I see. The point is to like learn to prove theorems. Kind of, but it's also true that out there in the business world, nobody's ever going to ask you to prove a theorem, right? That's not what you're actually doing. Okay, now I seem to have painted myself into a corner. So what is the point? Well, the point is that people say they're proving things all the time. Prove mm -hmm. is a much used word. I always say every time I hear someone say the word therefore, like my red flag goes up because I'm like, 
people all the time are trying to assertively express a chain of opinions and then say, see, my lo by logic, you have to accept my conclusion. And I think the point of knowing what a theorem is, is to know what a theorem is not. To be able to look at that and say, like, that is not the kind of thing we do in Euclidean geometry. I can see the sort of spaces between your assertions where you want B to follow from A, but really all that happened is you said A and then you said B. I am so glad that you made that point. I had a teacher once, and I, as a result, I, it was just beaten into me, and I don't use it, who would not allow us ever to use the word therefore in our writing and highlighted that therefore was a symbol of an illogical conclusion. If you find yourself reaching for it and having to say it, it's probably a sign that you have not justified what you're saying well enough because you wouldn't feel the need to like reach for that big hammer of a word. I'm going to make an assumption here, and you'll please, please correct me if I have it wrong, that among the most significant current intersections of math and business are around machine learning and are around the applications of that. Explain to me, if you would, what kind of math is machine learning and what in the world does it have to do with being a mountaineer? This is one of the parts of the book I was most excited about writing because, of course, machine learning is incredibly important. It's incredibly exciting from a scientific point of view. It's not my research area, but I go to tons of seminars about it and learn a lot about it from the practitioners. And in many ways, it's a new field of math that we're building under our feet as we go, which is like tremendously exciting. You know, in most of my scientific and research life, I'm working in very classical areas of math where the ground rules were laid literally thousands of years ago. So this is like a very exciting scientific moment. That being said, a lot of people treat this stuff like magic, and it's not magic. Yeah. In some sense, the basic mathematical principles, which I'm about to tell you of what machine learning is, are very simple. And it's this, it's a dressed up version of trial and error. The metaphor that I rely on in the book is imagine you're a mountaineer and you're trying to get to the top of a mountain. But now let's imagine that the landscape that you're exploring is completely overgrown with brush. It's a deep forest, and you cannot see the top of the mountain from where you are. You can't even see what direction it is. All you can see is the immediate neighborhood around you. And what would you do? Well, there's actually a pretty good answer to what you would do. You would look at the ground where you're standing and try to see in which direction is the upward slope. And maybe of all directions you could walk, you could see which one has the steepest upward slope. And then you take a couple steps that direction and then you reassess. Now you're standing in a new place where maybe the slope is different. And now you figure out which way to go affords you the highest slope. So what I just told you seems very simple-minded, right? But that's it, dude. That's machine learning. Like <laughs> that's all literally, it is. it's that plus some technical details. But literally, that's a process which in math we would call gradient descent. That's the fancy name for just being a mountaineer and like looking for the direction of steepest slope. I mean, there are details, but the basic thing that's driving the method is this kind of very simple trial and error. What's the best small change I can make to the thing I'm doing right now? Do that. And then ask yourself again, what's the best small change from the thing I'm doing right now? It's such a simple principle, but nobody ever says that, right? People describe it as if just some kind of like Merlin person sort of like is stirring a vast cauldron of math and then like Spotify comes out of it or something. I think like the use of something like therefore, or it is evident that the tendency of many of us to make things like say machine learning, make an explanation of something so much more complicated than it has to be, right? You just made it clear 
think of it like mountaineering, is also a bit of a trick to try to intimidate others and keep others from, you know, if you explain something in a convoluted, confusing way, and it puts the other person in a situation where they they now have to ask, what do you mean? And then, well, if they don't understand what you mean, well, you know, maybe they're not smart enough to get it in the first place. You know, I would hope that in the scientific community, that motive is there. I mean, most of us are teachers by profession, like those of us who are in academia. And so hopefully we are not trying to confuse or intimidate. The problem is that when academic scientists talk to each other, we have like a technical shorthand that we've built up over many years. And it's a very efficient means of communication. It's not there to sort of be confusing or to intimidate other people. It's there to sort of get things done quickly and precisely, but it's not built for outsiders. There's lots of super, super complicated stuff. I don't want to lie about that. But I also want to sort of be able to tell people what the main ideas are. Well, it's quite a skill to be able to speak both languages, for sure. Continuing with this idea in the machine learning and its applications to the rest of our lives, how significant of a risk is local optimum? So a local optimum, what that means is the following. You're carrying out the strategy of like, at each moment, Find what small change you can make that improves your strategy a little bit. That seems to give you better results. Now, it might happen that you get to a place and you're like, wow, like any little change I make, it doesn't seem to improve my situation. Maybe any little change would make my situation worse. So you could say, okay, at this point, I found it. I'm at the summit. I'm at the best of all possible worlds. But that might not always be true. You might be at the top of some little hillock. It's actually like far away from the main summit. And the example I use of this in the book is that it's kind of like when you're caught in a procrastination loop. You have some massive pile of crap that's like destroying your desk and office space and you know you have to deal with it. You kind of know it's stuff you're never gonna deal with so you should throw it out, but you can't bring yourself to do it. And at any given moment, the small step of starting to do that Is that going to make your life better? Like, no, it's going to make your life worse. In the short term and in the immediate situation, your day is going to be better if you don't start dealing with it. But of course, you're not at the real optimum because the real optimum is if you actually deal with like the whole pile and deal with it all. It's like in mountaineering, sometimes you have to go down in order to go up. Sometimes you have to get off your little hillock, go down through the valley to get up to the main summit. That being said, one of the great mysteries of this subject in contemporary machine learning is that this very simple-minded process of like always just like looking for short-term advantage, this kind of so-called greedy algorithm of gradient descent of just like making small changes that improve your strategy, that definitely theoretically and in principle can get caught in a local optimum like that, but usually it doesn't and we don't know why. That's I think one of the most interesting theoretical questions. So again, I sort of with one hand I'm trying to make the subject sound simple, like what the actual mechanism uses is pretty simple. But I also want to make the subject sound deep because it is because it works much better than it has any right to. And that's a hugely open theoretical question. We don't actually really understand why. Would you apply that in any way as you think about the we don't know why? Is there any aspect of that that can be applied to business decision making? I mean, on the one hand, I'm listening to you and the first half of what you said made me feel really good about myself. You were kind of giving a mathematical explanation to why I procrastinate. And I plan to quote you on it with my wife and explain why my stuff's all over. But then you kind of said, well, sometimes you do have to take a step down in order to go forward. Are there ways to think about it mathematically where you know when you should take that step back, let's say, to go forward, that step down to go up, or does it not work that way? First of all, I think just having the conceptual language of talking about it, I find helpful, at least for me, you know, I'm an N of one, right? So I mean, I'm, I can only say that anecdotally. I would also say, 
Well, a couple of things. One, absolutely, there's a real difficulty there because it may not be obvious. You can say like, oh, this hill is not that high. Maybe I need to go down in order to go up. But now it may not be so obvious which direction to go, mm. right? Maybe if you choose the wrong way, you're going down in order to go even farther down. Look, nobody said business was going to be easy, right? There's some questions that you can't immediately answer. But I would say, actually, to me, it seems like some of the strategies that machine learning people have devised to get out of local optima where you are, when you are stuck in them, one is just take a random big step, like literally random, choose a direction at random and take a big step instead of a small step and see if maybe that gets you someplace from which you can get to the summit. The randomness is important because you can get stuck saying, like, but how do I know what big leap to take? You got to accept that you don't know. And certainly in math, being a mathematician, you have to accept all the time that there's a lot of stuff you don't know and that you're going to sort of make some leap, make some action forward, try some strategy with no good reason to think it will work. What are underfitting and overfitting? Which is more problematic? How do we avoid both of them? Oh, it's like trying to pick between your two kids. I can never say which is more problematic. Each <laughs> child is problematic in their own way, right? But there are two things that can go wrong when you're trying to develop a machine learning solution to some problem that you're trying to study. So underfitting is a little simpler. It means you just haven't taken into account enough the data that you have in front of you, the examples that you've already seen. So if you were trying to sort of develop some business strategy, it might mean you just didn't really take into account like what happened before, like when you did similar strategies. And if you do that, you're probably going to develop a strategy that doesn't work so well going forward. Overfitting is more subtle. Let's see how best to do it verbally. Um, because overfitting means taking the data of the past too much into account, which it seems like, wait, isn't more data always good? Isn't refining your strategy to more closely be something that would have worked well if you've done it in the past, isn't that the best possible strategy? Well, not necessarily. So a typical example of an overfit strategy might be something like this. You say, my strategy is if I encounter a situation in my business that is exactly something I've encountered before, I take the course of action that would have been the best for that situation, knowing what I know now. I look back on all the decisions I've made, I decide whether they were right or wrong. And then I'm like, if I encounter that situation again, I'm going to do the thing that's right instead of the thing that's wrong. And if I encounter any situation that is not exactly something I've encountered before, then I just flip a coin because I have no idea what to do. Okay, that is not so useful of a strategy to have. It's not awful, but it's pretty bad because it means it's perfectly fit to the data that you have in front of you. It works perfectly on every situation you've already experienced, but it totally fails to generalize to new experiences. So in some sense, where you want to be is somewhere in between those two things. You want to be able to learn from the past, but you want to do something that's not just memorizing, it's actually learning. And one way to put it because this brings us back to geometry, is that you want to recognize when a situation you're facing right now is not identical with a situation before, but it's close enough. You might say, what's the closest situation to the current predicament I face? Well, there's that word again, close. The moment you say that, you're saying there's some geometry of all possible situations where some are near to each other and some are far from each other. And any machine learning scenario is exactly based on that. In this part, I found myself thinking about the costs and benefits of postmortems. Perhaps you do them after each semester, after you teach a class. Maybe you personally or with a colleague or the dean of your, you know, of your school go through postmortem. What went well? What, what could I have done better? It happens in business, happens in life all of the time. And what I took from my reading of overfitting and trying to understand what you just described was what becomes important is not just to go through 
the postmortem of what previously occurred and understand that and maybe document it in some way. But the utility of it is its applicability going forward. And the going forward, when I then get into another situation, the key perhaps is not necessarily only having all of my notes from that previous postmortem, but is having an understanding of how close or distant the new situation is to what I went through previously and in what ways is it different? And do I now have to change my strategy? Are those differences material or not so relevant? Can I apply what I learned, the data from previous, or no, is that not relevant? Because the delta to the new situation is so significant that it might appear to be the same as previous, but in reality, it's not. Am I getting close to what I'm supposed to be taking away? Totally. In fact, I like that so much. And this happens to me a lot. You know, once the book comes out and you converse with people about it, it is a process of realizing all the cool stuff that you could have put in the book (laughs) because different people read it. And I'm like, oh, that concept of the postmortem, when you say it, I'm like, oh, that literally is humans doing the thing that a machine learning algorithm does. Like you have your existing strategy, you see the results, then you go back. This is sort of akin to the process called backpropagation in machine learning Mm. and say like, okay, these were the results I got from this strategy. If the strategy had been a little different in some way, would I have gotten better or worse results? That kind of reflection is in a human way, exactly what the machine is doing. In particular, the point you make about understanding which deltas matter and which deltas don't, this brings us to Henri Poincaré, who is a major figure in the book, like one of the founders of modern geometry as we have it today. He's back from the late 19th, early 20th century. He's also one of the most quotable mathematicians ever. I had to like, one of his best slogans is he says, mathematics is the art of calling different things by the same name. Now, this is deep. This is deep because it's exactly this point you make that like, yeah, you never step in the same river twice, right? Like no two situations are identical, but some differences matter and some differences don't. And you can't think mathematically and you can't think reasonably unless you're willing to understand which things you're willing to call the same because they're the same enough. They're the same in the ways that matter, even though they are not literally the same, they're literally different. So this process of calling different things by the same name is so central to modern geometry. But I actually think that that principle is useful for all kinds of thinking. And it would seem to me that there are people who can be incredibly successful because they innately do the math. My presumption is it's a skill. Maybe it's one that some people are born with and maybe and others we, we can develop it. But somehow they kind of you know do the math very quickly, instinctively in their heads on how big that delta is, how much the difference is and which lessons apply and which don't. Actually, I'm curious. Can I ask a question, Chris? Because Please. when you say there seem to be some people who sort of seem to be able to more rapidly or more accurately mentally capture which deltas are important and which are not. Are there particular people you have in mind? Are there people in the business world who are known for this? I'm just curious if you have. If I'm certain that there are. Just off the cuff, hearing your question, there are maybe two that come to mind, one in particular. So one that comes to mind, and this is not an endorsement, but I mean it in a very particular way, potentially is Elon Musk. And the part that I mean it on, and I was just having a conversation on this with a friend of mine the other day, is electronic cars, battery-powered cars, totally predated Elon Musk. But what he noticed, what's the delta on his execution versus most of the ones that occurred before? In my opinion, and my friend's opinion, the biggest difference that he saw was it wasn't necessarily about the fact that the car was electric. That wasn't going to drive people to buy that car. It was, was it a great car? 
How did it drive? What were the other interfaces that it provided? What were the other things that it could do that made the experience differentiating and special? He took what other people were doing, right? I mean, Chevrolet was making like many other car makers. And, and is, right? And yeah, is. And so make, and yet he defined which difference really mattered. Apparently, I don't know, I don't own a Tesla, but the batteries are really good. But let's just say the difference wasn't that, oh my God, I have to make this incredible otherworldly battery that's going to last decades longer than the other ones. No, he recognized that it was the other differences that were most material. Does that work? It does, although it's funny for me, the whole appeal is that it's electric. And when I actually sit in one, it feels plastic and cheap and kind of unpleasant. But I'm like, but it is cool that it's electric, even though it sort of <laughs> feels kind of dingy as a car. And the seating in the car, as I've sat in them, sometimes I feel that way, yes. But the other aspects of what it does, I mean, the self-driving, the integration of technology, the fact that you, you, know, you can just download the upgrades and all of a sudden you know, have the next generation of the car that stuff all seems really cool to me. If I yeah, were. and I got to say, on the subject of my like lack of intrinsic geometric ability, if you saw me try to parallel park, they would like take away my PhD, like for real. <laughs> so that that aspect does appeal to me. Of course, in reality, the space of strategies that you're searching when you try to develop some algorithm using a, a machine learning system is way more than three dimensional, right? It's like in the case of like GPT three, one algorithm I write about, which sort of generates natural language in a really cool way or seemingly natural language. I think if I remember right, it's 175 billion dimensional. Nobody can visualize that, right? Like we, <laughs> we are not literally visualizing that. And in some sense, one of the glories of modern geometry is we erect all this formal structure. So going back to the beginning, this kind of set of formal and rigid rules that we learn in school. Why is it important to have formal and rigid rules? Because the formality entwines with our intuition and allows us to go farther than our intuition can go and be like, we can't visualize 170 billion dimensional space directly. But once we really have a feel for how two-dimensional space and three-dimensional space work, 175 billion dimensional space works pretty much the same way. So in some sense, the level of formality I had to learn in order to overcome maybe some slight lack of innate ability to visualize things in three dimension, it serves you very well if you want to take the geometry farther. That's fascinating. Jordan, thank you. Thank you for your insights. Thanks for just a terrific mind-bending book that required and rewarded with all sorts of new thinking. Thank you for your time. Oh, thank you for having me on. This is great.